remember shortly after Abby and I bought our house, um, I realized that we had moved into one of those neighborhoods where people uh, were very serious about home ownership. Um, a snowstorm blows in, and everyone in our street was up very early to shovel their driveways and sidewalks. I had always been the guy with the mindset that eventually this temperature will get warm and take care of this problem. Um, so why shovel it? Well, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't acceptable in this new neighborhood of mine. So there was the whole block. I'm sure you did your driveway. You always do that stuff. But the whole block, it was just clear sidewalks, get to the Cunningham house, snow. And I could just feel the collective shame uh, from my neighbors towards this lazy new family had moved in, uh, one neighbor in particular. And so the next time a snowstorm comes through, uh, it's time to prove myself. So I saw the forecast, set my alarm early, 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 went outside while it was still dark, and I started shoveling. And I wasn't just going to do the sidewalk in front of our house. I was going to do the whole block just to prove to everyone how amazing this new homeowner is that moved in. The problem, however, was nobody was awake to see me do it. And what's the point of serving your neighbors if they don't see you serving them, right? So hated the idea of everyone waking up to their sidewalk being shoveled and not knowing that it was me. And so this is what, this is what I found myself doing. Is, you know, this is your pastor, only for two more weeks. So if you've got a problem with this, you know. I found myself digging the shovel into the sidewalk to kind of so that people would wake up and look out the window and see me shoveling their sidewalk. That's the mindset that Jesus is confronting in our passage, sounding trumpets so that they see you give and so forth. For the past month or so, we've been exploring Jesus' interpretation of the law, allowing him to challenge the ways we tend to misuse, misinterpret, even rewrite the law of God. Now he turns to our motivation behind our obedience to the law. Not will we obey, but the question of why do we obey? And he's going to confront us with two options before us this morning. Two competing rewards to the life of our religious obedience. You can have the earthly reward or the heavenly reward. And that's how I'm going to break it down. Let's start with the earthly reward that's before us. The thesis statement of this section, so to speak, is given to us in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now before we get into, uh, get into the details here, let me just first note what this is not saying, which is important to note. Jesus is not condemning practicing righteousness, obviously. Now we who emphasize salvation by grace alone, apart from works of the law, need to be careful not to uh, de-emphasize the importance of the works of the law. We should wake up every day and seek to practice righteousness with a singular determination. We, we do not trust in our obedience to save us, and we should work really, really hard to obey the God who has saved us. What's being condemned here is practicing our righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. The second thing that is not saying is that our righteousness must be an exclusively private affair. Jesus says elsewhere, 
Let your light so shine before others that they may, quote, see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Christian obedience should be on public display for the world to see, bearing witness to others about the God we obey. Instead, what is being condemned here is practicing our righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. The desire for them to see us, to notice us, to praise us rather than our God. So we should obey, and we should obey publicly. Righteousness, and even public righteousness, is a good. So what is Jesus confronting here? He's confronting the motivation behind our religious obedience. And what he does is he goes through the three most common examples in his time, but honestly, they still remain, uh, religiously speaking, these still kind of remain the three bedrock uh, religious practices of praying, giving, and fasting. And he uses each of those to make his point. Let's briefly go through each of them and notice the common themes, because essentially he's saying the same thing three times with three different religious practices. Um, and we know this because uh, there, there, are, there are repeated phrases and words here, and that's, that's how I'm going to come at each of these examples. I just want to point out what's repeated, the phrases and words, rather than getting into the details of, of each of them. The first is the word hypocrite. Verse 2, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as hypocrites do. Verse 5, And when you pray, you must not like be, like, be like the hypocrites. Verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. So he calls them hypocrites every single time. And that word might... Uh, seems strange to us to use here. We would expect something like vanity or pride. Don't be like the prideful. But he uses the word hypocrite to emphasize what is the real issue going on here. Giving, praying, and fasting. These are good things for good purposes. When you use them in a way that they were not intended to be used, that is, by definition, a form of hypocrisy. We are practicing our religion in a hypocritical manner. And that's the real issue. Hypocritically exploiting religion for selfish gain. It doesn't have to be vanity. Religion can be exploited in countless ways. But in this passage, it's the allure of religious praise that Jesus is confronting. And we see that in the next repeated phrase. Verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Verse 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Religion can be hypocritically exploited in many ways, but the most common way is to be seen by others. Every single one of us wants to be seen. In a moment, I'm going to show you how that desire is very appropriate and beautiful in all of us. We were made to be seen, but we were made to be seen rightly. What Jesus is confronting is the desire to be seen in a way we were not meant to be seen. The nuance is explicit in verse 2, that they may be praised by others. Praise. Worship, that's not what you were made for. God alone is to be praised. But the flaw of our fallen nature is we seek what belongs to God 
alone. It's not just that we want to be God. That's the nature of our pride. We want to be treated like God. That's the nature of our vanity. And that is what religion offers you. Let me shoot you straight. If you want to be praised, religion is your best option out there. And Jesus is honest with that himself. Each of the three warnings ends with this same refrain. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. He's honest. There is a reward offered in religion. Religious piety absolutely can and will give you the praise that you crave. In fact, it's the easiest way to be admired and praised, which is why so many people turn to religion for that very reason. Think about it. Every single sinner, fallen, sinful people, every single one of them uh, desires to be praised in unhealthy ways. What that means is that at this very moment, approximately 7.8 billion people are competing for glory. That's a lot of competition. So it's hard to achieve the praise of others. It's hard to build enough wealth and possessions to be praised. It's hard to be beautiful enough to be praised. It's hard to be smart enough, athletic enough, artistic enough. There's only a few who achieve glory in this world. But there is always the easier and more convenient option of religious morality. And it works. Speaking from personal experience, the reward of admiration is easy to, choose, is easy to find by just acting more moral than other people. And Jesus is saying, you can have that if you want it. You can have the reward of religion if that is what you want. What's so interesting about this passage is that you would expect Jesus to condemn religious hypocrisy. In fact, there is nothing he condemns more than self-righteous, self-exalting religion. Elsewhere, he harshly rebukes it. Woe to you, Pharisees. So you'd expect our passage to say, beware of praying, giving, and fasting to be seen by others, for you'll be punished, you'll be condemned, you'll be judged for doing so. But instead, he says, beware of practicing your religion to be seen by others, for you will be rewarded. That doesn't make sense, unless the reward is its own punishment. And that's the point. You can be praised by your religion, for your religion, but the praise you obtain becomes its own condemnation. An entire book of the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes, is dedicated to making this point, to unmasking the vanity of our vanities. It's a depressing read if you've ever read it. It's an existential nightmare is what it is. As Solomon, a man who had all that our vanity longs for within his grasp, just declare it all meaningless. And the wisdom of Ecclesiastes has never been discredited. To me, one of the most ironic things about our culture is how we use the word vanity. The word literally means empty, hollow, worthless. And yet consider, for example, the title of arguably our most significant popular culture publication, 
Vanity Fair. Have you ever stopped to think about the irony of that title? The magazine we associate with culture, fashion, beauty, filled with pictures of people we admire is literally entitled Empty. An Empty Affair. In fact, Vanity Fair was stolen from John Bunyan's uh, Christian classic, Pilgrim's Progress, where, where Bunyan uses the phrase to describe a place of utter emptiness. But we celebrate that in our culture. We are a culture reveling in the nightmare Ecclesiastes condemns. And in this way, we are a culture built on the folly of vanity, a culture quite literally chasing after the wind. So make no mistake, vanity's emptiness cannot be avoided. In the end, we discover the reward of others' praise is no reward at all. Our Old Testament passage, Nebuchadnezzar standing on his palace, look at this that I have built for my own glory. And in an emblematic sign of our own vanity, immediately as the words are coming out of the mouth, God turns into an animal. The meaning behind that is vanity turns us into an animal. The praise of others turns us into an animal, not more human, less human. It is a miserable existence because in achieving the admiration of others, we realize it cannot satisfy and our hunger only grows deeper. So the reward Jesus speaks of in our passage, please understand that is an empty and miserable reward, which confronts us with a real problem. What are we supposed to do? I don't know about you, but it feels impossible for me to not want to be seen and admired by others. I don't want it to be that way, but every good deed I perform, this very sermon, I want to be noticed. I want to be admired. Perhaps not to the extreme of sounding trumpets like we see in our passage, but still, I want people to notice my religion And I want them to think great of me for it. Even when I practice my religion in a humble way, I want others to think I'm humble. How are we going to get out of this? It feels like an impossible dilemma. Well, the answer to religious vanity is not to try to rid ourselves of the desire to be seen and even admired. That impulse is undeniable and irrepressible in you. Instead, The answer is to redirect that desire where it belongs. Let's turn to that. We've seen religion offer us an earthly reward. Now let's turn to our heavenly reward. What Jesus does with each of these three is direct our religious focus away from public into the private. And it's in the private where we discover the truer reward of our obedience. Let's look at each of them. Instead of sounding trumpets when you give to the needy, Jesus says this in verse 3, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Instead of praying long, eloquent prayers in the synagogues and street corners, Jesus says this in verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. Instead of disfiguring your cells and fasting, Jesus says in verse 17, When you fast, anoint your head, wash your face then that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who sees in secret. And remember what I said in the beginning. 
Our righteousness was intended to be practiced publicly. It is not an exclusively private affair. But Jesus is emphasizing the private for a reason. Remember, Jesus has been condemning hypocrisy that exploits religion for vanity. It's the hypocrisy that's the problem here. Well, the truest sign that our religion is not hypocritical is that there is not a private, public disconnect to our faith. If you want to know whether your Christian obedience is purely hypocritical, then simply ask whether your Christian obedience only comes out when people are watching you. So Jesus turns to the private life, to those times of secrecy when the only one who sees is your heavenly Father. Yes, practice righteousness publicly before others just so long as you are practicing righteousness privately before God. And the greater message here, the message that frees us from that dilemma I spoke of, is that being seen by God in private is more important to us than being seen by others in public. There is a reason why Jesus emphasizes God sees you. Sees you. Every single one of these examples ends with this frame. And your, your, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now we are accustomed to having an aversion to talk about being rewarded by God for our obedience. But I don't, don't, don't let that aversion distract from the promise here that we desperately need to hear. Because this is the key to repentance of our vanity. Very important. Freedom from vanity is not found in renouncing your desire to be seen. You can't do that. You came into this world longing to be seen, and you never escaped that childlike longing. You were made to be seen. You were made to be admired. You were made to be loved. You were made to be adored. Dare I say, you were made to be famous. Don't shame that in yourself. But the folly of our vanity is that we keep searching to satisfy this deep need in places that have nothing to offer us. All the affirmation, all the attention, all of it, the fame of this entire world is not enough food for your hungry soul, which is why we are so hungry. But the problem is that we shame our hunger rather than feed it rightly. Don't suppress your need to be seen. Indulge it to its rightful end. And its end is the gaze of God. Jesus says explicitly to you in this passage, God sees you. He sees you. In fact, that is why Jesus has come. The entire message of the gospel is that Jesus has come to be for us what we are trying to find in our vanity. The gospel is the good news that God notices you. God wants you. God sees you, that you are really important to God. If Jesus was willing to lay aside his glory to have you, then you must be glorious to him. And that is the key to freedom. You are famous in the heavens. Who needs the fame of this world? The reward Jesus speaks of when he says, your father 
who sees in secret will reward you. What is that reward? That your father actually sees you. You don't obey to earn God's favor, but in your, obe- in your obedience, you experience God's favor. You don't give, pray, and fast to earn God's approval, but in your giving, fasting, and prayer, you do experience God's approval and smile. His delight over you is discovered in your obedience to him, and that delight is your ultimate reward. Let me tell you about another time. Woke up, snow's on the ground. This was years later. Holt, Holt was young, and I wanted it to be kind of a discipleship moment for him. So I got him out of a bed on a snow day, which is just cruel. But got him up, took him outside to help me shovel. We did our driveway and sidewalk, and then we walked down, to, uh, down the block to where an elderly uh, widow was living at the time, and we did hers as well. Didn't scratch the concrete, so we wouldn't know. I just wanted to be a Christian discipleship moment with my son. Um, but it was one of those days where uh, it, it did snow overnight, but then heated up uh, during the day. So by late morning, all the snow had melted anyway. And I, I said to Holt, now nah, I'm sorry I got you up so early. Thanks for helping me out, um, helping out the neighbor. I guess we didn't really just need to do that. And in response, it's one of those lines that, you know, parents, you have those lines that just kids say, you don't forget. He looked at me and said, but Daddy, don't you think that made God happy? And that's it. That's it, brothers and sisters. Your obedience makes God happy. It does. And his gladness over you is your reward. Who needs the smile of the world? You have the smile of your heavenly father over you. Friends, I hope TCPC is the most religiously pious community in our city. I want you to obey God. But it matters just as much why you obey not to be seen by others for the putrid and fleeting reward of their affirmation and admiration. No, we obey because God sees us, and God loves what he sees. May his favor free us from the favor of this world. Let me pray. Well, give us that favor now as we come to your sacrament, testifying to your favor and feeding us with your favor. Overwhelm us with your smile, O God. That you rejoice, as we heard in our assurance of pardon, that you, that you are rejoicing over us with loud singing. That you are quieting us with your love. Overwhelm us with your favor that it might free us from this vain pursuit of the favor of this world. In Jesus' name, amen.